the passage that we're dealing with. So in Matthew 13, there are seven parables that Jesus told. Seven parables. Uh, the, the last six all contain a reference to the kingdom of heaven, to the kingdom being like. The first one doesn't begin that way, but it's implied in the context that Jesus is teaching us something about the kingdom. So there's, there's a number of ways of grouping, uh, of grouping these parables. I want to run through a couple of them, ways that, that commentators and theologians have suggested are helpful. And by the way, none of these groupings are right or wrong necessarily. All of them emphasize something that is useful in one way or another, okay? So, um, so it's, just, it's just ways, uh, um, you know, God's Word is amazing, isn't it? You, you hold it in one light and it speaks something to you. The circumstances of your life change and you see the same thing through a little bit different light and you say, wow, how come I didn't see that before from the same scripture, right? And, and so there's all these all these facets, it's really not surprising that when we study Scripture, there's slightly different ways of looking at it that all, all um, provide us with a, a, a layer of significance, a layer of meaning. So one way of grouping these kingdom parables is what, I've, what I'm calling four and three. And that is the first four parables go together because they were spoken in the presence of the multitudes. And the last three go together because they were only spoken in the presence of the disciples. Jesus waited to tell these parables until the multitudes had gone. They were separated from the multitudes. They had left the multitudes. And now he was alone with his own. And so there was something about these parables that was appropriate to tell only the disciples. And so he shares these parables with just his disciples, the last three. Later on, when we get to those three, this might be more significant. We might, we might mention this again. But for now, let's just acknowledge, let's just point out that it's one legitimate way of grouping these parables. The first four, because they were told to the, the, the multitudes, and the last three, because they were told to just the disciples. Another way is what I'll call grouping them according to similarities. That is, uh, some look at what the parables are, and they say, well, here's a similarity between this parable and another, so maybe they should be grouped this way. Well, according to this view, here's how we look at it. There's the first, there's the, the first parables deal with, with some combination of planting and harvesting, right? There's a sower, he sows seed, and there's going to be a harvest because of the seed that's sown. And so we have this idea, an agricultural kind of approach to, to storytelling, to parable telling. So we have, we have um, similarities in that the first couple of parables are focused on the subject of planting and harvesting. The next ones are, are focused on what we'll call small things. That is, it only takes a little bit of leaven, just a little bit, a small amount, to have a large impact on a lump of dough. And a tiny little mustard seed grows into something really big. It's the parables of small things that is given to us. The third category, then, is a category of value. Right? There's a lost treasure, and there's a, there's a treasure buried in a field, or there's a, a pearl, and, and, and the person seeks something of tremendous value. And so that's another way to look at this, this grouping of parables. There's two of them side by side that are about uh, a certain value of the kingdom and someone, someone recognizing that value and seeking after it. And then there's the last one that would be by itself, and that's the parable of the dragnet. 
So <clears throat> similarities, planting and harvesting, small things, value, and then the, the dragnet, which is the, the seventh one, the one that would stand by itself. And, and that's a fine way of dividing these parables up. That's a fine way of, of kind of outlining in your mind this text. But there's one other way that, at least for our purposes right now, I prefer. In fact, overall, I think I prefer it because I think it has the, the deepest message behind it. Um, and it's a way of dividing these that, that I... I uh, uh, how many of you are familiar with the name James Montgomery Boyce? Anybody ever heard of James Montgomery Boyce? Raise your hand if you have. Do you like him? Right, he's been dead for a number of years. Um, he was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia. I remember working in Philadelphia and literally being excited waiting for James Montgomery Boyce to come on the radio. The guy was so good. He was so good. He was such an excellent teacher of scripture. He was one of those guys that if you didn't love what he was saying so much, you might not enjoy him because he didn't have a great voice. He wasn't someone that you'd listen to and say, boy, I just love the sound of his voice. He's got that mellow, dulcet tones, that deep bass, and it's it's great to listen to. No <laughs> accent, you know, no British accent. No, no. But, but man, if you're into content, so good, so good. So then in verse 36, we have the, the interpretation. Then he left the multitudes and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he answered and said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <clears throat> then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let me just, real quickly, in visual form, run through the basic interpretation of the parable, at least the basic elements of the parable, as Jesus identified them for us. The basic elements of the parable. He says, first of all, the sower is the Son of Man, that is Jesus. That's the one in this parable who sows the seed. Now, let me just say this very quickly, because you remember the last parable, the same thing was true. The sower goes forth to sow. We said that refers primarily to Jesus. By extension, it applies to anyone who preaches the gospel or who shares the gospel. But Jesus is the ultimate of that, right? Jesus is the main one. So what we see here, and I'll just mention this briefly, what we see here is that in this interpretation, there's a certain consistency in what the elements of these parables represent. There's a certain consistency, right? The sower is the same in both parables. Now, there's some variation, but there's also a certain consistency throughout the parables. Um, that'll, come, that'll become significant uh, in a short while as we go through these parables. So the, son, the sower is the Son of Man, that is the, the Lord Jesus Christ. The field is the world 
slash the church. Now, what Jesus said is, is, is that it's the world. So you might be asking yourself, why, why did you throw in there the, the church? Don't add to or subtract from what Jesus said, right? And that would be a legitimate thing to remind me of, okay? But please notice this. In, in verse 38, he says, the field is the world. But then when, when he talks about harvesting the world, in verse 41, he says, the son of man will send forth his angels and they shall gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks. In other words, while the church is in the world, we're, we're not of it, but we're in it. And God sympathizes right now with the fact that we have to live here. He knows the challenge of being the church in the world. And so when he talks about the world, he recognizes that his people are in it. So when in this parable he talks about dealing with the evil that is in the world, he's also in his mind thinking of, when I deal with the evil that is in the world, I will also be dealing with the evil that my church has to experience. And so there's not intended to be an, a super sharp, intense distinction between the world and the church in the world in this, in this parable. Because we're present here, we experience fully the evil and the challenge of being in this world. So when God deals with the world, he also relieves his church. He relieves his church. So although he says the field is the world, then he talks about reaping the harvest. He talks about reaping, harvesting the earth. He talks about harvesting it out of his kingdom. <laughs> In other words, my people are there. That's where my kingdom is. I'm going to take out all the evil things from it. He's taking it from the world. He's also taking it out of the church, right? So there's a, there's a combined idea here that is worth us noticing in the, in the words that Jesus speaks. He says, thirdly, the good seed is believers. The good seed is believers. That refers to believers. That's the children of the kingdom. And then there's bad seed. Um, now, we need to be careful here. Uh, because you don't want to go, you don't want to leave this morning looking, you know, your neighbor and, man, it sure is a bummer to have been with all that good seed and now we got to go out with the bad seed, right? All these bad people out there. Um, that's not the point. Uh, we'll talk more about that uh, next week. But for now, the fact is that believers and unbelievers live side by side. They coexist. They're, they're both there and they're intermingled in this field. So we have good seed and we have bad seed, right? And then he says the enemy is the devil, that is Satan. There is an enemy who comes and sows bad seed, and that's, that's Satan, that's the devil. He says there's also a harvest, and the harvest is the end of the age, the very end of the times when, when Jesus is going is to harvest the, the earth, and the reapers are angels. By the way, let me just stop here. You know, some... Some um, places emphasize angels too much. And then other places don't emphasize them at all. <laughs> you know, the Bible has some things to say about angels. There is a supernatural world. That is, there is an, an earth that's beyond the, uh, an earth. There is a world, there is an existence beyond the, 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 the part of God's creation that's governed by matter and space and time. And the, and the Bible has some things to say about angels. 
one of which is that they are ministering spirits to us. That they are sent by God on errands to minister to those who are the heirs of salvation. Now, there's a certain element of ministry, uh, of mystery in that for me, because I don't know about you, but I don't see angels on a daily basis. But the fact of the matter is, I know somehow they've been involved in my life, even though I'm, I'm, I may have been unaware of it. Maybe there have been times when they protected me from things and I was completely ignorant of it. Times when I thought, man, I don't remember the last, the last five miles I was driving because I was so deep in thought and there's some angel looking at me going, that pathetic little human being, if it wasn't for me, he'd have been dead three times in the last five miles, <laughs> right? I don't, I don't know how that works entirely. But there are ministering spirits. There are ministering spirits. Fascinatingly, one of the things that we're told in Scripture is that there's some, there was some function of, of angels in the transmission of the gospel, the transmission of God's word. That, there was a, that, they were, that it was given by angels. I don't know how that works exactly. I don't know what their role was, but there's something there. And, and then there's this, that in the end of the age, they're going to have a role in reaping the earth in separating believers from unbelievers. And, and I, I don't know exactly what it... And by the way, one of the other things that at least in story form, the story of, of Lazarus and the rich man that Jesus told is that it seems anyways that the first thing you'll see when you die is an angel that may escort you into the presence of God. Now, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that it happens just like this. But listen, we don't know how time moves beyond life. So what to us is just like this, absent from the body, present with the Lord? That's the best way God can describe it to us? Maybe the moment you die, time stops. It becomes insignificant. And all of a sudden you enter into a completely new dimension and there's an angel there going, hey, I know you even though you don't know me. And it's my privilege to take you to your father's house right now. I don't know exactly what that's like, but I got to tell you this, a little sanctified imagination that doesn't get overly unbiblical is not a bad thing because we adults lose our sense of wonder very quickly. We live in a very real, demanding, pressured world and we forget sometimes that there's a world of wonder out there, the advantage of being a child. But my brothers and sisters, there's more than enough wonder communicated to us in Scripture. I don't know exactly what is. I'm just suggesting possibilities, but I think it's very possible that angels have a special role in death and that they escort us into the presence of God in that moment. For whatever that's worth, the role of angels, here they're described as reapers. And then we have a burning, which is the lake of fire, that there's going to be those, if, if you die in the condition of being bad seed, there's going to be a burning. There's a lake of fire awaiting my brothers and sisters, love does not win in the sense of everybody's going to be in heaven. Everybody's not going to be in heaven. I wish everybody was going to be in heaven. But in that sense, not everybody's going to be in heaven. That's why the gospel matters. The gospel matters. Our preaching of the gospel matters. And then there's a barn. Boy, for some of you, that'd be like, heaven's a barn. Yes! 
<laughs> I've said often when I've described heaven to you guys, you know, Revelation, it's a city, it's a city, yes, it's a city, I'm so excited. But here in the parable, it's a barn. I'm kind of like, man, I hope that's figurative. Because <laughs> I don't want to spend eternity in a barn, just me. Um, so anyways, uh, but, but the, the, the subject, the, the, the idea is, it's a place where things are stored. It's a place where grain is harvested to. And that's the idea that you're going to a place that you belong, where you're going to be taken, a place that's going to hold you for all of eternity. It's heaven. It's the glory of God's people. It's what we're looking forward to. That's what's coming to you in your future. right? And so here's the basic elements of the parable. All right. I've got to do this very quickly before we close this morning. So these are all the things that in the story are specifically interpreted for us. That Jesus says, this is this. But there's two things that he includes in the story that he does not specifically interpret. So I got to admit to you very openly this morning that you got to be a little bit careful because if Jesus tells a story and he says, here's the things and then here's what they mean. And then you go, well, there's two things you didn't explain. I'll explain them to you. You got to be a little careful with that. Everybody agree? Okay. So it's things that probably you ought to be able to support from other parts of Scripture. But I think it's useful for us to say that there's two prominent parts of this parable that Jesus does not interpret. You can either make nothing of them and say, well, since he didn't talk about it, I should just completely ignore them. Or you can say, well, they're part of God's word too. I ought to at least try to think about it and ask myself if there's something God wants to tell me about this. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Are there some possibilities that we could learn from these two things that Jesus said in the parable? I think there are some things we can learn from these two things. So here's one that Jesus did not talk about. In the story, in verse 25, in the story portion of the parable, he says that the bad seed was sowed by an enemy while men were sleeping. He said it happened while men were sleeping. And then he didn't interpret that for us. He didn't tell us what that means. How many of you know sometimes the Bible uses the word sleeping to refer to death? Right? Sometimes it's, it's, it's used that way. But this seems to be a story in which it's literal. They, they go out during the day. There's seeds sown during the day. It's good seeds sown by the landowner. And then everybody goes to sleep. And while he's asleep, bad stuff gets done to his field. An enemy comes in and does some bad stuff to his field. So it seems to be talking about something more literal, something that we would experience. So we ask ourselves, what does this mean that Satan went to work sowing bad seed in the field during a time when men were sleeping? Well, I, I think it suggests two things to us. And the first one is this, that Satan does his best work covertly. He's not always in your face. Now, how many of you, how many of you recognize that there's a lot of in-your-face evil in this world today? Right? There is a lot of in-your-face evil. But please hear this. Most of us recognize that, and while we're affected by it, we're not easily fooled by it. Right? I mean, even if, even if you give in to it in some sinful way for a time, it's not because you didn't know it was evil and you could, oops, and you knew it was evil. Right? A lot of evil is just in-your-face evil, and you recognize it. But my brothers and sisters, the things that are most dangerous to you are the things that Satan is most sneaky about. When it comes to his war against the kingdom, when it comes to him warring against God, the kingdom of God, the people of the kingdom of God, 
The best work he does is secret. It's, it's deceptive. It's, it's, it's covert. It's, it's behind the scenes. It's, it's not easily noticeable. You know, I've often thought to myself, if many Christian spouses had their eyes... Do you remember in the story of Elijah, uh, of, uh, of Elisha, when the city is surrounded by enemies and his, his, um, his servant freaks out? Oh, what are we going to do? There's all these enemies around us. And, and Elisha prays and says, Lord, open his eyes so that he can see that there's more for us that are against us, right? And, and, he, and, and all of a sudden, the, the servant's eyes are opened and he sees chariots of fire and, and, and spiritual angelic army surrounding. He's like, oh man, got nothing to worry about here, right? I wonder about the reverse. You get a husband and wife that are, that are fighting intensely. If God opened their eyes at that moment and they could see the powers of evil swirling in the air around them, they'd be probably way less inclined to keep opening their mouths. Because this is happening. Because there's an unseen world and Satan is having a party at that moment. You know, in the screw tape letter sense, it's like there's a pitchfork behind you saying, poke the husband to say that. <laughs> Isn't this hilarious? Right? While his wife's sobbing. And in her, and in her pain, she's, there's, a, there's a spirit going, and make her say this back. And it's all just getting uglier and uglier and uglier and uglier. You know why? Because we live in a world that's touched by this right here. And we're ignorant of it most of the time. Because he's at work behind the scenes in ways we don't see. In ways that we don't immediately in the moment attribute the realm of evil is doing something here. Remember some years ago, I don't even remember what it, who, who it was, one of our presidents or somebody said if, actually I think it was Rush Limbaugh. I don't know why that popped into my head. He just recently died. Is there a recession? Don't participate. I'm not sure how that works economically, but I will tell you this. There's a spiritual war and evil is at work. How about instead of keeping on fighting, we just refuse to participate? How about we say, I just refuse to be party to something that is satanic. I refuse. Even if it means that they win the fight. Man, I'm not good at that. I don't like losing an argument. But if we could see behind the scenes, what we'd see is that Satan is sneaking around behind in the, in the shadows. And he's causing as much havoc as he possibly can. What does it mean? One of the things he does when he works covertly is he works deceitfully. He uses deceit. He uses deceit. We've got 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15. I'd encourage you to read the passage. In that passage, there are several truths that are presented. The first one is that deception, deception is a key part of Satan's strategy. How does he war against God's people? One of the things he wants to do is deceive us. He wants to deceive us. He wants to deceive us. If he can't keep you from being saved, he will get you as deceived as he possibly can because it, it gets you off track. He will deceive us. The second thing we're told in this passage is that, that deception is aimed specifically at believers. You know, the unbelieving world, he's got kind of in his back pocket. 
it's us that he has to really work to deceive. We've had light given to us. He's got to work to deceive us. And so he aims deception at us, at the church, at believers. The third thing we see here is that one of the ways he does it is through false teachers and through false teachings. One of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways. And so Paul warns the Corinthians there in 2 Corinthians 11 about false teachers and false teachings, that this is a real thing to be concerned about. Pay attention to what you believe. Pay attention to what you're taught. It is interesting, though, that in earlier, earlier in the chapter, I listed first, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15. But in, in verse 3, Paul expresses a deep concern. In fact, listen to this. He uses of himself, an apostle, mind you. He says, I am afraid. Wait a second, Paul, fear not. Paul says, I fear. What is he afraid of? He says, I'm afraid that the way the serpent beguiled Eve, you will be deceived. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, I ain't whistling Dixie when I warn you about deception. It's a real threat to you. See, most of us don't want to think of ourselves as gullible. We don't want to think of, as, we don't want to think of deception as possible for us. But please hear this. You can be deceived, and so can I. It's a very real possibility. We are all capable of being deceived. We're all capable of being deceived. And Paul expresses a real concern. He says deception is a real threat to us. It's a real threat to us as believers. We can be deceived. That's Satan's work. He works to deceive. Let me just say one other, one other thing. There's a lot that could be said about Satan doing his best work covertly. Why is that there again? Oh, so deceit is the first way he does it. Listen to this. Secrecy is another way. It's another thing he uses. He uses secrecy. Now, let me say it to you. Listen, I was sitting in my office thinking, what's the way to communicate this? I'm not saying this is directly from God. You'll have to judge it. But this might be a useful way. Listen to this. Secrecy, whoops. That'll be fine. Secrecy is the fertilizer. How many of you know evil grows in secret places? Evil grows in secret places. It's why men love darkness, because their deed is evil, Jesus said. Men love darkness. People love darkness, because they can hide their sin there. Right? Secrecy is the fertilizer that helps evil things to grow. Please hear this. And for us as believers, isolation is the factory that produces fertilizer of, of secrecy. We were not created to be lone rangers, isolated from other believers around us, all by ourselves. None of us are sufficient for this. You need to be in a body. You need to be part of a body. You, you may be an extreme introvert. You need somebody else in your life. We need other believers involved in our lives. And please hear this. I believe that in the years to come, a strong Christian community is going to become more important than it's ever been, not less. It's going to get more and more important as time goes by. 
that you've got brothers and sisters, listen to this, who have your back, who will pray for you and fight for you on their knees when they need to, who will bring you a meal when you need to, in the most practical ways and in the most spiritual ways, that you're part of a community that will support you because we're in a spiritual battle. Listen, men who know, listen, men who, who, we will need to get over that very dishonest gasp of horror when someone shares a struggle with sin with you, because that's what it is. It's a dishonest gasp of horror. Because the fact of the matter is, in one form or another, we have all known sin. And instead of a gasp of horror, someone who will stand by your side, be committed to you, pray you through it, fight with you through it, share with you through it, walk with you through it, be your friend through it, and maybe even open themselves up to you through it. Why? Because, because secrecy is the fertilizer that nasty stuff grows in. And isolation is the factory that produces that secrecy. It produces that ugly fertilizer. You can't afford to be isolated. You can't afford it. Because Satan does his best work covertly. I'm not even going to take the time. You read Acts 16, it's a fascinating example. There's a little girl filled with an evil spirit. And she walks around ahead of Paul going, These men come to show us the way of salvation. And you think to yourself, Why in the world does an evil spirit announce these men are going to teach us the, the way of salvation? Because that spirit knows, If I can deceive everybody, And I can... And I can say something true. If I can only get them to leave me alone, when they're done preaching and they'll leave, I'll, they leave, I'll be the one left here to go back to work again. Paul's like, uh-uh. I'm not taking any help from the realm of evil. Get out of her, you evil spirit. I don't need an evil spirit telling everybody that I came to preach the gospel. I don't need your help. Get out. Why? What did, he, what did he know? He knew that there was something going on in secret that could not be allowed to stand. Satan is so sneaky. He'll even let one of his evil spirits say, these men come to show us the way of salvation. He's such a deceiver. Such a deceiver. But he's always got a trick up his sleeve when he's doing his deceiving. Right? It's the way Satan works. He does his best work covertly. While men were sleeping, that's what it means. So, so what is the second thing we see? Number one is Satan does his best work covertly. And the second one is we Christians better not fall asleep. We're called to wake up. Romans 13, 11 through 14. We're told to wake up. The day is far spent. The night's at hand. We're close to the end times. We're in a place now where we better be alert. We better be awake. We can't afford to, to be sleepy. It's not easy. But my brothers and sisters, we need to make sure that we don't allow distractions to rule our lives at this time. Be alert. Be alert. Be awake. Because, because Satan gets away with stuff when people are sleeping. He gets away with stuff when people are sleeping. Don't be sleepy. Wake up. I'm preaching to myself. Wake up. Wake up. Serious days. Wake up. Be alert right? Be sober. 
Be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, is wandering about, roaming about, seeking whom he may devour. Wake up, be alert. That's the call of, the, of this parable. All right, so that's the first one. The second one, and I'll do this one super fast. The second one that Jesus doesn't mention what this means is that there's landowners, slaves. He says the seed is the, are, are the believers. And then he says, then there's angels that are going to reap. But in the story, there are some slaves that come to the landowner and say, didn't you sow good seed? And, 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 uh, um, and what about the bad seed? Why do we have this bad stuff growing in the midst of the good seed? Who are these slaves that come to Jesus? Well, when, when commentators have looked at this, they say one of two things. They probably are just another way of talking about believers. That is, the good seed are the believers. But when they see the bad seed growing, it's just another way of, in the story, there's got to be some way to tell the story. Jesus says the servants come to him. It wouldn't make sense in the story to say, and the seed started talking and said, why are all these bad seeds here among us, right? It wouldn't, make a, it wouldn't be a, a great story that way. So he said, the servants say this, right? Believers. But, but listen, some commentators get really specific, and they say that it really refers to Christian leaders, people like pastors, who have a certain responsibility to the church. Say, where does this bad seed comes from? come from? What should we do about it? Where did this bad seed come from? What do we do about this bad seed that's here? They are people that express concern for the well-being of the kingdom. People that express concern for the well-being of the kingdom. So, just thinking of this as believers in general, or, or as Christian leaders and pastors, notice this, however you view that, notice this, these two things about these, about these slaves. The first thing they express is a desire to take action. Should we pull out these bad weeds? Should we pull out these bad seeds? Do you want us to rip them out? All right, just for a second. Notice this desire to take action. By the way, it's not wrong. The desire to take action is not wrong. It's a very natural desire, right? Um, how many of you see evil and want to do something about it, right? See something's wrong, want to, want to correct it, want to fix it. Right? So there's a natural desire. It's a natural desire. And by the way, there's a time for it. There is a time to take action. That's going to be next week. We'll talk about that a little bit. There's a time to, to take action. It's natural. There's a time for it. But listen to this. The third thing you can say about it is that the desire is against evil. It's a good desire. It's shouldn't we do something about evil. It's a good desire. It is a good desire. So their desires are on the right side. Their desires are on the right side. So to that extent, it's all good. But notice the second thing, and that is that their desire for action is restrained. Should we pull out the evil, the evil seed? Nope, don't touch them. Now, before I finish and I say the last things I'm going to say, will you please remember for a second that I, I have already said there's other scriptures that show us that there is a time to take action. Okay? Everybody hear that? So we're not talking about never standing up against evil. That's not what we're talking about here. But I do want to point out this much. Notice that in this parable, 
Their desire for action is restrained by the Lord, by the landowner. He says, don't touch anything. And I just want to ask you to consider this. And, and I'm going to try to do this without weeping. Because, because this is a thing that touches me deeply. My wife has a touch of the prophet in her, and she's often right. You know, there have been some times when I have walked with some people for a long time, ignoring the fact, not wanting to see the fact, that they were not honest in their desire to receive any help and to serve the Lord faithfully. They were playing games, acting a part, and blowing smoke. But listen to this. This is where I get to justify myself and feel good about it. You know, one of the challenges when we don't see fruit being produced immediately is just to want to write people off, say, that's it, I'm done with you, cut them off and forget about it. That desire to take action, to just say, let's rebuke it. Let's just, let's just nail that thing and expose. You know what? What we have to remember is that too often when we take matters into our own hands and take action, we don't intend to, but we often do more harm than we do good. And often it's best just to wait until the thing exposes itself. In the end, it'll wash out. In the end, the good seed will be able to be told from the bad seed. That's not your job to determine that. You just coexist with the bad seed. You just stay there. You just stay there. You know, this is an amazing thing. About Jesus, the scripture, one of the, thing, one of the scriptures that was said about Jesus is that, that a smoking wick he will not quench. Right? It's got no fire left. There's just a little trail of smoke going on. Yeah, but if I just... If I blow gently enough, maybe there's enough heat left that it'll come back to life. Right? And a broken and a, and a bruised reed he will not break. Do you know, listen, if we could see people as smoking wicks and as bruised reeds, we would know that you've got to be so careful with them. You've got to baby them along. You've got to be gentle with them. You've got to be careful. And listen, it means that you're going to have to go through this for a long time. You're going to have to stick with it for a long time because there's not much there. And if you try to push it too hard, you're going to put it out. I think of, of James and John. Lord, you want us to call down fire from heaven? You don't know what spirit you're of. Leave it alone. Or this. Lord, you want us to separate the good seed from the bad seed? Don't touch it. Leave it alone. I'll sort it out in the end. 
I'll figure out the difference between the two in the end. I'll cut between them in the end. I'll divide them. You leave it alone. You know why? Because if you don't, you might hurt some folks in the process. You might hurt someone in the process. I got to tell you, there have been some people that have, listen, if I'm being as honest as I can, just as a, as a, as a very imperfect man, that, that have made me want to just backhand them. But I thought to myself, if I, if, I, if I speak too harshly or if I do something I shouldn't do, I'm going to cut off my ministry to them. And listen to this. If I cut off my ministry to them, it's not them that's going to suffer for it primarily. It's the people that count on them that are innocent that are going to suffer for it. It's their husbands or it's their wives or it's their kids. They need this person to get discipled and get healthy spiritually. They need it. If I cut this person off, it's everybody under them that's going to suffer for it. And so should we, should we separate them? No, you'll hurt them. You'll hurt the good seed. Don't touch it. You'll hurt the good seed. Leave it alone. My brothers and sisters, you and I need to realize that there is a caution here. Even though our desire to oppose evil is good and right and has a time and a place, the caution is against unrestrained zeal. Some of us get really zealous about some things and we want to take matters into our own hands. And God's word to us would be, why don't you leave it alone and let me deal with it? You just be faithful in the little thing I've given you to do there. You minister, you serve, you help. But don't get too hands-on. Don't get too aggressive. Don't cross the line into what's my job to do. Don't do that. It's not a prominent part. It's not a part of the... But, but in the, in, you think of good seed and bad seed side by side. The, the responsibility of the good seed is to present the gospel to bring bad seed to be good seed, right? You just do your work. I'll do the separating at the end. I'll do the judging side of it. I'll do the, I'll do the, it's time for them to burn side of it. That's mine. Right? You do the good seed part of it. Get your hands off anything that's going to hurt them. We like to correct. We like to rebuke. We need to remember what we've received from God. We need to remember how God's dealt with us. I asked you earlier, I asked you earlier when we were receiving communion to just take a thought, to take a minute and think, what's your, part of my testimony, part of the things that I think about every time, almost, almost every time we receive communion, one of the thoughts that I have during the time of communion is, Lord, you have been so patient with me. Since the day I got saved, you have been so patient with me. Lord, you have been so gracious, long-suffering, patient with me. You know, if God took the approach to me that I wanted to take to some other people, he'd have cut me off a long time ago. The desire, we evaluate it right, that's evil. Man, I'd like to do something about that. But we're not very qualified for that very often. So the landowner says, take your hands off it. Take your hands off it. I'll do that ultimate work. You pull back a little bit. Don't get too zealous. Right? We pastors need to hear that. We need to hear that. 
The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves, if, perhaps, God will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth and that they may recover themselves from the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. That's a good word for us. Patience doesn't come naturally to us. Teaching, 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 teaching. Hoping that eventually it'll recover someone from the snare of the devil. Not easy for us. Patience, patience. Does that make any sense? We're going to get to the other side. Next week, I'm going to talk about taking action because there's a time to take action. So I'm going to talk about that next week. But this week, I think the default is we've all needed a great deal of patience from God. So let's extend that to each other. Amen? All right. Would you bow with me this morning as we close? And we're just going to take a moment to reflect. Maybe the, the way to close this morning would, you, would be just to say this. This parable shows us that there is very clearly a spiritual battle ahead of, uh, in front of us. There is a war going on. Satan is not sleeping today. He is he's not omnipresent. He's out there doing something right now somewhere. I don't know where, but he's doing something somewhere. But the hymn says, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, the point is, there's a world full of devils out there. And so while he is somewhere doing his thing, he's got lots of servants that are doing his thing everywhere else. And we all, we all have to face that reality. It's not a very pleasant reality, but it's a reality. It's a reality. Sometimes it's in our own homes and the ways that we talk to each other or in the church, the way we relate to one another. Sometimes if we as parents could see that it's not the child we're fighting against, it's a spirit that we're fighting against. That child needs a little bit different kind of hand. Maybe our anger is not as useful as we'd like to think it is. There's a spiritual conflict going on. And my brothers and sisters, we just need to allow ourselves to be broken before God a little bit and realize that we're too quick to lay hands on everything right now. And we've got a spiritual battle. And listen to this. It's not a short-term sprint. It's a long, hard fight. And we have to be in it for the long haul. And we just have to realize sometimes we're dealing with wicks that are just barely hanging on. It's going to take a gentle hand. It's going to take a lot of, listen, you want to get aggressive? Get on your knees and fight it there as loud as you want to. Curse it as much as you want. But when you get in the person's face, touch them soft. Because it's too easy to do too much damage. It's too easy. You have to walk the long walk because none of us change quick. It's not easy. And you're fighting the devil. You're fighting him. 
So where's the fight? Where do you face the fight right now? Where do you face the fight? My encouragement to you is if you would just say to God today, Lord, please help me because I don't have it in me to endure it. I just want to pluck it out right now and deal with it right now. I just want to get it done. Lord, would you give me the grace to walk this one out? Would you give me the grace to endure? Would you help me, Lord, to be patient through it? that I don't hurt the good seed that I don't intend to hurt. Right? Would you just bow and, and take that word and apply it to your own heart however you will, and I'm going to give you just two minutes to pray, and then I'm going to close. Lord, we're in, a, we're in a spiritual battle. There's a, an evil that rages against us, and, um, and we can't afford to be asleep. We can't afford to be blind to it. And we can't afford to just fly off the handle and react to it. We, we have to be calculated. We have to be a people who respond with our eyes very much fixed on Jesus. Lord, at least those landowners asked what they should do before they did it. At least they asked. They, they took some marching orders from their Lord. I pray that we would learn the patience of asking for direction before we just act. Lord, it's, it's intense days. There's a war that exists against your church. There's a war that exists against our families, our homes, our marriages, our relationships as believers. Lord, help us not to be deceived. Sometimes we fight the wrong battles and we make a big deal out of things that are really secondary. Help us to see where the fight really is. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness. And So, Lord, help us to approach this in the right way. Give us that patient endurance to walk with those who need it just as we pray that you would give patient endurance to those who have to walk with us while we're growing as well. Give my wife patient endurance for me and give me patient endurance for, for her and for my family, Lord. Help us, I pray, to do well in this. Let that be the case for all the husbands and wives in this room this morning. Give children patient endurance for their parents and give parents, patient endurance for their children. And Lord, where there are wounds, 
that the devil would use to ultimately bring destruction, I pray that you would heal them. Give the grace of humility, of repentance, of being willing to ask for forgiveness, and then give the grace to forgive and to heal and to be restored and to fix what is, what is wounded. Lord, help us. Help us. Lord, please help us today. And Father, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, there are a few of you that are visiting with us, and some of you that are, I've only been here a few times. I'm just going to tell you this about me openly. I, uh, I always intend to preach shorter, and I almost never succeed at doing it. So I know I preached a long time today, and uh, thank you for enduring and, and bearing with me and sticking with me through it. I know I, I tested your patience today. And, uh, and I'm thankful for it every time people put up with that. Um, so God bless you, and may his presence be with you, and I trust that the Holy Spirit will speak to your hearts, and you'll take some nugget with you that'll stay with you throughout the week. Lord bless you and keep you in joy and fellowship together before you leave this morning.